hope you'll be ready for the Compassion Weekend, the last weekend of April. Next Sunday at 3.30 in the sanctuary, professing members of Trinity United Methodist Church are invited to attend a called session of the church conference where we will vote on the matters related to disaffiliation. And I'll have uh, more to say about that next Sunday, but um, the 23rd at 3.30 in the sanctuary. And because we are required to check everybody in, it's probably going to take a while to get in there. So coming early would not be a bad thing. Our lesson this morning is a familiar passage for the Sunday after Easter. It comes from the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, starting in the 19th verse. Hear these words. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe a week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So he's doubting Thomas, right? That's what the... That's what the heading in some Bibles say, Jesus and Doubting Thomas. But I want to suggest to you he was not a man of doubt. In the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus has gone away from Bethany. His friend Lazarus has gotten sick. Um, Jesus has kind of come clean about it that Lazarus is now dead, but we need to go back. And John tells us that the Jews are plotting Jesus' death and that going back to Jerusalem or even as close to Jerusalem as Bethany could be dangerous. The 11th chapter, the 16th verse, Thomas, 
who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. Those are not the words of a person who is doubting. Then in the 14th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place I am going. And Thomas, Thomas, a male, admitted to Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered Thomas by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Thomas is not an individual that doubts Jesus. And I'm going to surmise that Thomas is suffering from a couple of things that may sound slightly familiar to you. The first thing with Thomas is, he didn't want to deal with a secondhand faith. The other disciples have seen Jesus. The women at the tomb have seen Jesus. They have physically been in his presence. Thomas is not. And he is not going to accept a secondhand faith. He wants his own faith. He wants his own experience with the risen Lord. Secondhand faith travels around a lot in the church. People will tell you, oh, my mom and my dad, they were charter members of that church, and every time the door of the church was open, they were in church, and every time the door of the church was open and they were in church, they drug us to church. And these people unknowingly live out a secondhand faith because they're still living off their parents' faith. What they do in their own life is they are pretty casual about their own faith. They have never really deepened that faith commitment to Jesus Christ. They've never given their lives to him. They, they know Jesus and they know Sunday school stories. They know about him really. They don't know him. And they show up at Christmas and they show up at Easter and they show up at Mother's Day. And then you don't see them. They may pray a prayer at Thanksgiving, but then they don't pray. You know the kind. They bring out the Christianity, or at least their version of it, because it's secondhand when people are around. It's very casual. It's not deep. It's not redemptive. John Wesley talked about a group of people that he had seen in the church, that he'd even seen in the Methodist movement, and he called them almost Christians. And he was afraid that his people would be almost Christians, that they would know the language, they might know some of the songs, they might know some of the activities, but they would not know the Christ, and their lives would not be transformed. So secondhand faith is very often casual. It's very often convenient. You pull it out when you need it. My son Andrew is the comptroller of Lake Charles Toyota. I can't tell you what that job entails because Andrew does a little bit of everything. And I have not had to haggle with a car dealer for years. 
since Andrew's had the job, I just call Andrew. Andrew, I want whatever. Andrew says, it'll be ready tomorrow. More often than not, Andrew calls me and says, you need a whatever, and it'll be ready tomorrow. I said, that's fine, Andrew. I'll come pick it up. The first time I ever haggled for a car, Bill Watson Ford, Gentilly Boulevard, no, that was Chef Highway. Chef Highway in New Orleans, Bill Watson Ford. Oh, my goodness. And I was a seminary student. I couldn't buy a big Ford. I think I was trying to buy a Ford Expire. No, they were called Aspire, sorry. I mean, it was a little cheap. I'm in seminary. I can't afford anything kind of car. And that salesman just was trying to make the best deal he could make. And I was trying to figure out how to do this thing. And I wasn't giving in to him. He wasn't giving in to me. And so he looked for the connection. He said, by the way, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a seminary student. You know, that man found Jesus in that moment. He started telling me about all the churches he attended, and his favorite church hymn was Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. I thought, well, that's the first song I ever learned. You're doing pretty good, Bubba. He just kept going and kept going, and the further he went, the deeper he got into this morass that he didn't really have a faith in Jesus Christ. He had a secondhand or almost tertiary knowledge of Christ. Thomas said, I don't want that. I don't want your experience of Jesus. I want my own. And that's the leap very often we don't help people make in the church. We'll preach about him. We'll teach about him. We'll sing about him. We'll pray to him. We'll read scripture about him. But we don't help you make the leap to make the faith your own. Thomas said, unless I see him, Unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. And when Jesus talks to Thomas, he tells him, look, put your hand here, put your hand in my side, your finger in the, the nail holes, do not doubt but believe. And that's a place where it's unfortunate that we don't have a Greek or an English verb for faith. Faith in English is a noun. These two words are both the Greek word for faith. Jesus says very literally, or the Greek version has it, do not doubt a pistis, but believe pistis. Both are the Greek words for faith, but we make faith a noun. Faith is something you do. It's not a noun. You know, I have faith. I have faith that this is a chair. It looks like a chair. I unloaded it as a chair. It's gray like a chair. It's sold by a place that sells church chairs. I believe it will endure my weight. Such a nice chair. I don't have faith in the chair yet. I believe in it. <clears throat> now I have faith in the chair. 
My full weight is on it. I can feel the bottom giving way even as I stand here. But my full weight is on the chair. That's what Jesus is telling Thomas. Don't have opistus, hepistus. Faithing. I'll come up with a verb for faithing. Thomas didn't want a secondhand faith. Thomas didn't want something that wasn't his. Thomas wanted his own. That's the first thing going on with Thomas. He is not going to accept it until he sees it, until it becomes his. Second thing going on with Thomas, a little more subtle. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. That is not the statement of a doubter. That's the statement of someone who is sulking. Because Jesus didn't appear to him. He missed out. He didn't get to see it. He was feeling forgotten. That sounds way too familiar. Your friends are prospering. Everything they do works out. Every stock they invest in goes, their kids get all these scholarships, not tapping into anybody's savings. Everything they do financially works out and you run out of money before you run out of month. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like that these people who, who sort of live on the, the, the edge of morality, they're not quite good, they're not quite bad, they're in this gray area, but everything they do seems to work out and you try to do the right thing and you always get the shaft. And bad news comes to you. It doesn't come one email at a time. It comes a whole website at a time. And it's all your bad news. Or you're having a lousy day as part of a lousy week, which is part of a lousy month, which is part of the lousy year you're having. And things just kind of pile up. And some Christian friend wanders up to you and says, well, you know, God will not give you more than you can handle. Just makes you want to slap somebody, doesn't it? And the feeling is not doubt. The feeling is that we've been forgotten, that we've been left out, that we have been left out of God's plan of grace and redemption. And we're like Thomas. We want proof. We want it in 4D, 4K, 1090i, whatever the biggest screen television, Dolby surround sound, interrupt our program. We want tangible proof. Thomas is not doubting. He's feeling forgotten. But Jesus is about to change things. And again, it's unfortunate the way the English translated this. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, then he said to Thomas, the word two is not in the text. Then he said, Thomas. 
Touch me, Thomas. Called him by name. He called Thomas by name. He recognized him as an individual. He saw him as a person who was hurting, as a person who needed that first hand, that eyes on it, that hands on it experience with Jesus. And when Jesus calls him by name and invites him to do what he's asked to do, Thomas responds the only way you can with pure worship, my Lord and my God. How does it feel to know you're not forgotten? Or better, how does it feel to know that somebody understands when you feel forgotten? The most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history came not from a prisoner, not from a widow, not from some patient or orphan. The gut-wrenching cry of loneliness came from a hill, from a cross, from a Messiah. My God, my God, he screamed, why have you forgotten me? Never have any words carried so much hurt. Never has one being been so lonely. Never has the feeling of being forgotten been so earth-shattering. The crowd quietens. The Jewish high priest receives the goat, the pure unspotted goat. In somber ceremony, he places his hands on the young animal as the people witness. The priest makes his proclamation, the sins of the people be on you. The innocent animal receives the sins of the Israelites, all the idolatry, all the cheating, all the ignoring, the widows and the orphans are transferred from the sinners to the goat, to this scapegoat. Then he's carried to the edge of Azazel, to the edge of the wilderness and released. He's banished. The sin must be purged so the scapegoat is abandoned, forgotten. Run, goat, run. The people are relieved. Yahweh is appeased. The sin bearer is alone. And on Calvary's hill, the sin bearer is again alone. Forgotten by his people, forgotten by his God. Every lie, every object, every coveted, ever coveted, every promise ever broken or on his shoulders, he is sin and God turns away. Run, goat, run. Jesus, who had been with God since eternity, is now alone. The Christ, who was the expression of God, is abandoned. The Trinity is dismantled. The Godhead is disjointed. The unity is dissolved. And it's more than Jesus can take. He withstood the beatings. He remained strong during the mock trial. He watched in silence as those he loved ran away. He didn't retaliate when insults were hurled. 
nor did he scream when the nails pierced his wrists. But when God, when a holy God turned his back, when Jesus was forgotten by God because he was taking on the sins of humanity, it was more than he could handle. You know the feeling. You know the feeling of being forgotten. You know the feeling of watching families being torn apart by all sorts of problems. Of all those folks in Alpine and other facilities that have outlived family and friends and nobody comes to visit. You know the feeling of losing loved ones that you've walked with through life's journey. You know what it feels like to be in the oncology ward when patient room by patient room is filled with folks dealing with bad news. You've seen it. You may have experienced it. And I keep thinking about all the people who cast despairing eyes toward dark heavens and cry, why? And now I imagine Jesus listening. His eyes misting. His pierced hand brushing away a tear. And although he may offer no answer, Although he may solve no dilemma, although the questions may freeze in heaven as we utter them, he understands. The one who felt forgotten by God remembers you, and he calls you by name. Thomas? Touch my hands. Thomas, here's my side. The one who created you has known you since you were in the womb and has known you by name. And that's what's so neat. He knows us by name. And the Bible tells us that in eternity, we get a new name. The book of the Revelation, I will also give to each one who wins the victory a white stone with a new name written on it. And no one knows this new name except the one who receives it. You are going to have a name that only God knows. You are so loved. He's going to give you a new name. And that's how he will refer to you, by name. Thomas didn't cotton to secondhand faith. And Thomas, for those days, felt forgotten. But he found out he wasn't when Jesus called him by name. In the ancient church, when a child was born in the community, everybody would know it. 
And believe it or not, there are some folks that had children that uh, moms and dads didn't know what they were having until the child arrived, and then they were surprised. And the community would gather for the baptism because at a baptism, we did four of them last night, you baptize the name. So the child will be presented and the priest would say, what name is given this child? And then the priest would announce the child's name and the community would go, oh, they had a boy or oh, they had a girl. And that's the name. And it was precious and holy and sacred because it had been announced in church. Last night, we baptized four of our confirmands. And we call them by name before we baptize them, just as God calls you and I by name. We confirm 10, and as we're laying hands on them, we're calling them by name. Because that's how God knows us. By name. And because God knows your name, you are not forgotten. Because God knows your name, you are not unknown. Because God knows your name, he knows your hearts, and he knows your struggles, and he knows your fears, and he knows your hopes, and he desires that deep personal relationship with you where you're walking together. So this morning, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come and touch the waters of baptism again. You may just touch them. May do like I do. I touch them and touch my forehead. And I remember my baptism and I'm thankful. And after that, we invite you, if you would like to, to come to the altar and pray. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.